Lights up on a park bench. Lights up on a desk. Lights up a podcast by the Ensemble Theatre of Chattanooga. Hi, my name is Peter Macklin, and I am from New York City, and I'm reading the role of Warner. My name is Sherry Wycliffe, and I am in Brooklyn, New York, playing the role of Carmen. Lights up on the small living room of Warner's apartment. Everything is in disarray. It is dark. There are papers on the floor, empty dishes on the coffee table. An old military uniform is folded over a chair towards the back of the room. Chip bags and beer bottles trail the floor. Sitting in the dark, barely visible, is Warner. It's open. Enter Carmen. She shuffles around until she reaches a light switch. The apartment looks even more trashy in the light. We now see Warner sitting in a wheelchair. What happened in here? What are you talking about? This. All this. It's whatever. What did I tell you? Remember what we read? The only way you're going to get any better is by maintaining a healthy diet. Don't do that. What? That. I don't know what that means. That. What you always do. Which is? Everything you always say. That healthy diet shit. All that. It's true. It's not. It's bullshit. I know it and you know it. What is wrong? You say what you feel like you have to say. What they taught you to say, whatever. The hell kind of school you went to. Are you saying I lied to you? Yes. That's exactly what I'm saying. I've never lied. Then what would you call it? Huh? Sugarcoating? I have no idea what you're talking about. Warder wheels closer to Carmen as he speaks. Maintain a healthy diet. Get fresh air. Blah, blah. All that. What is it going to do? What do you really believe it's going to do for me? What? What, I'm going to eat a can of spinach like Popeye and all of a sudden pop up and run a marathon? I never. Or, or, or even better... Maybe if I get enough sunlight exposure, I can drive to the store and get my own goddamn food. Then maybe I'd actually want to maintain a healthy diet. Oh, no, no, no. I got a good one. This is unnecessary. You're going to want to hear this one. Uh, And you know it. Maybe. Just maybe I can get in the shower without your help. I get it. Okay? I get it. I don't think you do. You're right. I don't. I can't. And if I'm being completely honest with you, I don't want to. But this, all this junk isn't helping you any. Then what will? Tell me what will help. Solve my problems. I beg you. I get down on my knees. 
Oh, but you know, I can't. My job isn't to help you solve all your problems. It's to help you live a halfway normal life. Halfway normal people don't require other people to make their lives halfway normal. This is my job, Warner. And this is my everything. Carmen reaches into her pocket and pulls out her phone. She shuts it off. It's time for your medicine. So I'm gonna just... Yeah. Carmen walks to another room. Werner takes a breath. He rolls over to the couch and picks up a pillow. He places it over his face, his hands squeezing the fabric. He screams, pain muffled and silenced. He slowly lowers the pillow and places it on his lap. His face is red, his eyes redder. Carmen re-enters, holding a handful of medicine and a glass of water. She hands each pill to Warner, one by one. Thank you. Yeah. Carmen takes the glass of water from Warner, but Warner stops her. She freezes. I'm sorry. It's no big deal. Really? Okay. He lets go of the glass and she steps back. Canada. Huh? That's where I always wanted to live. In Canada. I hear it's nice. I hear it's cold. I was so sure of it when I was a kid. I knew I was going to get there. I had a map on my wall and everything, I swear. I don't think I've ever been more committed to something in my, in my entire life. I have a cousin in Canada. How's he like it? He's in prison. Oh, Oh, I'm I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. expecting that (laughs) no i i get it man that's crazy man that's crazy i but i know how that feels prison i mean you can leave any time oh yeah i'll just wheel my ass down the highway and maybe pick up some girls along the way That's not what I meant. I know you think I'm an asshole. I don't. Oh, you do. You'd be batshit crazy if you didn't think I was. I don't know what you want me to say. I was raised Catholic. 
I know that if my grandmother was alive, she'd push me off to her church somewhere. I, I can take you to church. God, there's no point no more. God can't do nothing for me now, at this point. I'm damaged goods. You're still a person. I look like a person. I believe that. But that's where the line ends. And I didn't, I didn't even do it for selfish reasons, you know? I didn't go out there for some patriotic grandstand. I was a kid. I was 18 years old. I wanted to go to college. I wanted to have a career in something. Make a family, buy a home, be somebody, be something. But when you got a family that can barely afford to manage their kids in public school, can't even keep the lights on every month, Werner rolls over to the folded uniform and takes it in his hands. I had to do what I had to do. I was the oldest. My father was getting old. My mother was, well, my mother. I was tired of having nothing, of being nothing. On the commercials, they tell you that if you want to make a change, if you want to make yourself useful and be important and worth something, if you want to build something, you got to suit up and fight! Now now I, I can't stop fighting. I'm sorry. For what? Hey, you're just doing your job, right? There's nothing to do with you. There's nothing you could have done about it. I'm pretty sure you got the short end of the stick by having to take care of me. It's what I want to do. No one is forcing me. I know. Now, at least. I used to think you'd walk out that door one day and never come back. I was sure you'd just give up. It didn't help that I talked to you like crap. I'm used to being talked to like crap. It's a long story. I don't have anywhere to be. Carmen stands up and nervously smooths out her already wrinkled sweatpants. I need to make lunch. Uh, what do you want? Grilled cheese? Oh, come on. I thought we were having a conversation. Well, or do you want fast food? I, I think I saw a, a new place that just opened up a few blocks away. I can be back in no time. I see. It's just, I think the cheese in the fridge might be expired. If you don't want to talk to me, you can get out. You don't have to beat around the bush. Just leave. I'm sure you won't have any problem making your money. Hey, Warner! I'm not an idiot. I can figure things out. I've done it thus far. I can figure out how to fix my own lunch. I can figure out how to wipe my own ass. Warner clutches onto the arms of the wheelchair and attempts to stand up. Please sit back down. No! I'm sick of it! He stands, sweat spotting appearing on his forehead. The chair begins rocking back and forth. He trips over the wheel and falls hitting the ground. 
Carmen goes over and reaches out, starting to grab his arms. He waves her off. Stop it! Just stop! She backs away. In the quiet, the sounds of Warner's crying is audible. He lifts his head and some of his upper body long enough to wipe his face. He reaches out his hand. Carmen walks over and takes him by that hand, then by the side, lifting him back into the chair without trouble. He wipes his face once more and clears his throat. Are you okay? No. This is my job, Warner. Yeah, I know. But that's not it for me. Look around, Carmen. I got nobody else in here. Nobody. You're young. You're healthy. You can leave here. Be free. Feel the wind on your face and as you drive home. You could go out with your friends, have drinks, make life plans. I'm not saying it's not fair, but it's not fair. Don't worry about lunch. I just need you to help me get in bed. My dad was a drunk. And I was his little girl. Luckily, we didn't have too much in common. I didn't pick up the worst of his habits, so I guess I dodged a bullet. Sorry, but he hated a mess. I got, I got that one from him. He wasn't that bad at the beginning, at least not from what I can remember. But it got worse when my mom died. She was sick. Cancer? AIDS. A blood transfusion gone very wrong. He didn't blame me or even himself or even the doctors. It wasn't like that. He was a man and reacted like one. He wanted control of every situation he was in, but he couldn't control it. None of us could do anything about it she puts her hands on his shoulders we can't choose the fucked up things that happen to us we're not in control i was supposed to come back a hero with an arm full of money and benefits i wanted to be superman and i could have been i still believe that I could have been. Then I took one step. One step and... Bam! Everything that I wanted went away. In a literal fucking flash. I was supposed to come back a hero. Instead, I came back a burden. You're not a burden. Not to me. Lucky you. Imagine having poor parents who hardly have a pot to piss in 
Now they have to worry about me. The stress they had got greater. The bills, they had more zeros on them every month. The tumors growing inside them got bigger. They're gone now. I killed them. Shut up. I'm, I'm sorry, but stop. At least your mom got just got the bad end of the draw, but... I could have done so much more. Says who? I mean, really. Says fucking who? You talk like you're the one who's dead. I am. You're not. You're not. Wait here. Where are you going? Just wait here. Please. Carmen disappears into another room. Warner takes hold of the uniform again, the metal still intact. He runs his hand over it, lifts it to his nose and smells it, then rolls himself back over to the chair where he initially retrieved it and places it back. Warner starts picking things up off the floor. He crumbles the bags and he smashes the cans. His arms getting fuller, materials falling onto his lap. Carmen comes back in the room with a jacket. She hands it to Warner. Got a thing for trash now? Thought I'd make it a little easier for you. Now what's this for? Drop the trash. We can do that later. I'm taking you out. Oh, no, I can't. Yes, you can. Put on the jacket. I haven't... I know. Put it on. Let's go for a ride. Is this some half-ass attempt to make me... to take me to the doctor's office? Because I'm pretty sure my next appointment isn't until, like, next week sometime. <laughs> no. Come on. Let's feel the wind against our faces. Warner puts on the jacket. Carmen takes his chair by the handles and pushes him out. A bright ray of sunshine enters the room as they exit. Lights fade. Humanities Tennessee is pleased to announce that the Ensemble Theater of Chattanooga and the Lights Up Podcast are grant recipients to the Sustaining the Humanities to the American Rescue Plan grant program. A program made possible by the National Endowment for the Humanities as part of the $1.9 trillion American Rescue Plan Act of 2021, approved by the U.S. Congress and signed into law on March 11. Because of this program, Humanities Tennessee is able to provide $941,454 to 91 organizations throughout the state. The purpose of SHARP grants is to support jobs in the humanities, keep humanities organizations open, and assist the field in its response to and recovery from the needs created or exacerbated by the COVID-19 pandemic. These grants may focus on humanities projects or leveraging operational support stemming from the devastating impact of the coronavirus pandemic. They may also help organizations plan for the future and begin the long process of response and recovery to the pandemic. 
and the Lights Up podcast. We'd like to thank Humanities Tennessee and the National Endowment for the Humanities for this amazing opportunity. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Lights Up. Uh, I'm Dana, and I'm joined by my fabulous co-host, Christy. Hello, everyone. And today we have the playwright of Hands from the Fire, Chris Eli Black. Hi, Chris. Hey, how you doing? Good. Thank you so much for joining us today. We just got to listen to Peter Macklin and Sherry Wycliffe bring this piece of yours to life. So what was that like getting to hear it without actually seeing it? Just Yeah, it's always kind of an, an out-of-body experience. Um, you know, both seeing things that you've written and hearing things that you've written, it's always just kind of, you know unbelievable that because the way I see it and anyone who knows me has heard this analogy too many times you know I see the creation of any art but especially theater as as kind of a form of architecture in the sense that you know my job is just to lay the blueprint you know I kind of do the basic design of the thing and then people who are a lot more talented and skilled and intelligent than I am come and they build the actual home um, that the audience, or in this case, the listener, lives in for the duration of the show. Um, so it's always, you know, a treat to to be able to live in that house that other people um, have built um, and, and see what they created using kind of just the basic blueprint that I that I laid out. I love that analogy. I do too. It's such a visual, so that's really satisfying. So, how long have you been a playwright, and what got you started in with playwriting? Yeah, I've been a playwright since, I guess, 2019. Um, and what got me started? I, I don't I don't know. I feel like a lot of people have their kind of origin story. I think mine is, is more so. I just, something told me to do it one day. Um, I wasn't a theater kid. I wasn't writing plays in high school. I've, I've never taken a playwriting class or anything. It was you know, something that, that told me, you know, but I always loved telling stories and I always loved, you know, being able to see the words ability to connect with someone in real time. Um, and so I think that led kind of naturally to me sitting down and saying, well, what if these voices that I grew up with, what if these voices that I live, I've lived around, what are these voices that I hear every day, um, are being spoken from characters and, and, at the end of the day, I think I came to the realization that we all have stories we want to tell and we all have stories that we want to see. Um, and we all have characters and scenarios and moments that we want represented. But at the end of the day, no one can tell your story but you. Um, and so instead of kind of waiting to see if my story would ever be told, um, one day I sat down and just started writing them and they were really bad. Um, I, I do not look back at anything that I wrote when I when I started writing um they were horrible um but you know I, I I kept writing and I and I kept trying and and then eventually started getting a little bit less bad and and here we are we can't really build anything without the blueprint so uh we're interested in how you develop your blueprint what your writing process is like um especially for someone who you know, we talk to playwrights of all kinds who their gateway drug has been all different things as far as like, yeah, they were theater kids or they weren't. Um, for someone who wasn't a theater kid who didn't take a playwriting class, uh, how did you develop your process? Can you talk to us about that? Yeah, I think that, again, just getting started, it was a matter of these these stories being in my head and these voices 
of these characters being in my head. And so whenever, you know, I, I always see it as, you know, having these characters in my head and when they're ready to speak, they raise their hand. Um, and when they raise their hand, that's when I sit down at the laptop and, and start typing. Um, and some, you know, and, and sometimes they're not talking. And at that point, you know, is, is when I kind of, you know, wait for them to be ready to. Um, sometimes they can't stop talking. And that's when, you know, I, I don't move from my seat and keep going. Um, and sometimes the process is just me pacing around my room, uh, talking to myself uh, and, and, and screaming foul language when I can't think of a good line um, or what the next scene is going to be. Um, so, so, you know, the process is always different, but it always begins with, you know, that raising of the hand and that character um, saying that they're ready to tell their story. Um, and then just sitting with them and letting them do that. You know, I, I always say that I see writing um, as a, more of an act of translation and an act of transcription than anything. Um, because, you know, the stories that I'm telling and the characters that I'm and the voices that I'm using are, are usually based in reality. And so I'm just trying to tell these stories the best I can in the most realistic and authentic way that I can. I, I was just going to say, your your characters are well-trained and polite that they raise their hands. I really <laughs> admire you for having such polite characters. <laughs> um, diving into Hands from the Fire, uh, your characters, Warner and Carmen. So what inspired this this piece? Yeah, I think that in most of, if not everything that I, I write, I try to focus on the American experience um, and there is no monolithic American experience. There's different layers. There's, you know, the good and the bad and the ugly um, of this country and of the society that we live in. Um, and so for this one specifically, I wanted to focus on someone who, uh, like a lot of people that I went to high school with, like a lot of people that I know decided to join, you know, join the military and do so with, you know, the most honorable of intentions and motivations and wanting to serve our country. Um, which is, you know, possibly the most noble thing one can do. Uh, but you, you see and you hear so many people who do that and they don't come back heroes. They, they come back and, and, and are treated like second-class citizens. They're unable to find employment. Um, some are physically injured. Some are physically as well as mentally and emotionally damaged. And, um, and I feel like there, there are so many stories like that that we don't hear and so many stories that are tucked in the corner um, or left in the shadows or, or talked about, but but not really made into a conversation. So I wanted to uh, tell the story of someone like that, um, but also tell the story about the the woman who saves his life. And 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 it's funny. One of the in my notes when I was listening to it uh, the, the first time, I am definitely that friend for a lot of people, similar to Carmen, of like let's be healthy and 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 buck up, little camper. It's gonna be great, you know. Like that's and my the first thing I wrote was oh my god, I'm a Carmen, and I think I think that we I was only you know maybe three pages in, but I was like I relate to this woman so much. <laughs> I just loved how you said that you want to bring light to stories that were tucked in the shadows. Um, and what I said to Christy is, I mean, so you've so clearly done that because I think the final image of this play is so beautiful and so simple, but says so much when it just says the light is entering the, the room as they're leaving. Um, and so that was beautiful. And so I, I just wanted to say that I feel like you have achieved that goal with Hands from the Fire of 
you brought light to something that was tucked in the shadows. You want to have people have a conversation about it. And you have Warner sit there and actually say that in the play. Like, I thought we were having a conversation. And it's so simple, but that was really heartbreaking for me of like, oh, sometimes the biggest need is the most simple. Yeah, I think it accomplishes what I what I wanted it to, what I set out to to, to say. I, I wasn't in this specific story wanting to focus on anything other than this moment, because um, I feel like nothing in either of their lives will trump this moment. This is the moment where his life changes drastically, and this is the moment where I think Carmen um, sees really why she's doing what she does and the power uh, of, of what she does um, and the power that can, it can have over another individual. So I think this is a moment where both of their mindsets and their lives change. And if even for a moment, their lives change um, and they make decisions that at the top of the play, you might not see them making. Um, and, and so I think that I really just wanted to focus on this moment and, and it goes back to the characters, you know, once they walked out that door, the characters put their hand down and they said, this is all we need to say. And we brought up just a few moments ago, that relatability of Carmen, um, and the caretaker, the helper. Um, obviously it sounds like you had some real life experience or inspiration with the character of Warner. Um, I loved that throughout the course of the play right and you do in this very short amount of pages give each of these characters a big change um it's subtle but it's big can you talk about how you fleshed out um that with carmen because for me what i took away from that is even the helper needs help even the care care needs care um so where did her inspiration come for you I think a lot of it, I mean, goes back to the conversation about, like you were saying, relatability and seeing ourselves in someone like that. Because I think that in our lives, we have both been the helper at times when we've needed help, right? There has been a lot of times where I have been the supportive friend being given advice, and I'm not taking my own advice in my own life at that same moment. I'm saying, go do this, you know, it's okay, everything's okay. And then after I get off the phone with them, I'm, you know, I'm panicking myself and having anxiety and, and trying to figure things out. Um, and, and wondering why I don't have the answers, even though I've been giving the answers to someone else. Um, so I think that, you know, it always goes back to looking inwards when you're writing something and saying, okay, who am I and how can I put a little, you know, how can I cut a slice of myself and put it in this character? Um, and, and so being able to, you know, flesh her out as someone, you know, as she exposes or, or explains to Warner in the, in the show, she has problems. She has a past. Um, she has things that she struggles with same as, same as he does. And it's because we all do. Um, you know, you know, even the therapist needs a therapist kind of deal. That's what I loved about the, I thought we were having a conversation moment is that there's so much we don't know about the people around us. We take for granted, um, the human being that might be, you know, ringing us up at the grocery store. And so often there is just that front, especially in a professional setting, you know, for Carmen as a caregiver of, okay, come in, I get to focus on you. I don't have to think about me. I don't have to think about my problems or what I'm going through. Don't have to bring that to the table. And, and yet bringing some of that to the table, each party bringing their own pieces to the table is truly where a lot of that 
um, learning from each other happens, that community happens. I'll say that you find out about um, the real journey someone's going through. We learn from each other. We hurt together. We support each other. And that doesn't happen unless those conversations happen. So I really loved that moment because, you know, for me, I just had that visual of these walls that fall down as we get to know the people around us and truly build our community. And what is that, that we are so afraid to build community, even with the people that live right next door to us sometimes, you know? Um, So I, or the people we work with, people take care of us, things like that. I really loved, um, really loved that moment in your story. I also loved the moment where they start to get into a little bit of like comparing trauma of like, well, you know, at least your mom, you know, she just got dealt a bad hand. It was the blood transfusion. My parents were eating like, right. And, and it comes to that point of where it's like suffering is suffering and we can't compare and we can't, and we we're both in pain. And just because I'm so obviously in physical pain and, and this, you know, Warner's got this where he can't hide it you know? Um, and Carbon's like, yeah, don't be fooled. Mine can be just as bad. And, and I love that you were able to bring out these like nuanced things that are, whether it's 2008, 2022, are still so relevant, um, but they were so nuanced. And I just genuinely appreciated that. And if you want to talk about that moment, I'd love to hear it. Um, but I would love to use that also as a launch pad of how you sharpened your writing um, to get these kind of nuanced moments and get to the heart of the matter. Yeah, I'll kind of give an answer to both. I'll just give a, a long yeah, answer. Um, so, <laughs> I know, it was a long question. <laughs> um, so, so in terms of, of that specific moment you were talking about and you kind of talked about the comparison of, of suffering, again, that's just something people do. It's something that I think that, right. you know, if we don't all do it, at least I've done it, you know, um, and, and we don't all do it out loud, of course, but we all do it internally. We see someone who's struggling with something that we might think is, is, you know, small compared to what we're going through at the time. We're like, what are you complaining about? Not thinking, right? There's someone who's going through something bigger than we are even, you know, our issues are minimal to someone else and, and their issues are minimal to someone else. You know, there's always going to be, you know, the way I see it, there's always going to be someone who's doing better than you. And there's always going to be someone who's doing quote unquote worse than you. Um, but we don't think about that in the moment. You know, you know, I was talking to, I was talking to some actors when I was, I was doing a, a show about a month or so ago, and we were talking about a scene that had to do with kind of the same point. And I was like, think about how many times we get upset when like our food doesn't come on time or like the, the delivery wait time is too long. And we're like, oh, my food's going to take 45 minutes to get here. Oh, they forgot the, the straw in the bag. Not thinking someone isn't eating tonight at all. I'm a comment section hound on social media. I always read the comments to see if my opinions are shared by other people. Um, And there's so many times when you see like celebrities talking about their mental health or something, you go in the comments, they're like, what do they have to complain about? They're rich. I have to come. I have to work 40 hours a week. And it's like, 
okay, yeah, that's legitimate. You know, it's legitimate to feel that way. Your feelings are valid, but so are theirs. You know, and they're allowed to struggle with things just the same as anyone else. So I think it's just one of those things that that people do. And it's not good that we do it. You know, it's a flaw in all of us, but it's something we do. I think that in the early plays that I was writing, the reason they were so lackluster and, and so not great to look back on is because when I started, I was saying, okay, well, who are the successful writers and how do they write? And, and what stories do they tell? Um, and so I was just basically imitating. I wasn't using my voice. I wasn't using my experience. I wasn't using my stories. I was saying, okay, who are the people who everyone knows that does this well and how do they write? So it was just bad imitations. I was painting a bad Mona Lisa um, when I would never meet Da Vinci. And and so what brought me to being able to do those more nuanced moments or tell write things like Hands from the Fire and, and things that I've written since is the fact that I started, again, looking inward and saying, okay, what are the stories I've heard in my life? What are the voices? What are the ways that people have spoken? Whether they're, you know, cadence and dialogue or and dialect, you know, what have they been through? What are the stories that aren't getting told? In the beginning, I was so focused on, okay, what are the stories that people want to see that I was neglecting the stories that needed to be told, um, in my opinion? And so once I started saying, okay, let's block out the voice that's saying, who's going to like this? Who's going to agree with this? and start listening to the voice saying, you know, tell this story, then that's when everything kind of kind of changed and I was able to slowly start better writing these, these human moments. Um, and those are the moments that, you know, that have people come to you and say, oh, I saw myself in that. I have kind of a twofold question pivoting off of that. Um, do you have certain playwrights that you do feel have influenced you? Not necessarily that you were trying to uh, like mimic or emulate, but ones where maybe it's the content of their work that has really inspired you. And then the second part of that question is, what is it that motivates you as a playwright in your own work? Yeah, I would say I definitely have a Mount Rushmore um, of people. I, I say at the top of that is is definitely August Wilson um, and and Sam Shepard. I think that those are kind of individuals who uplift the order the quote-unquote ordinary person um in the ordinary lives and and yet in this in the way they write ordinary people they make them extraordinary because you see that relatability and that humanity and the things that we all have in common you know whether you know i i've never lived in a family like the one in sam shepherd's Barry child or true west but i see myself in some of those characters and I don't always like that I see myself in some of those characters, but I see them. You know, I, I wasn't alive in the in the fifties or sixties, um, but I see myself in characters in August Wilson's Fences and, and Jitney. Um, and I, you know, and so just being able to to have writers like that um, who who really uplift those stories and do it in a way that doesn't, you know doesn't glamorize anything or doesn't have to add any glitter to it to make it consumable, just gives it to you how it really is um, and keeps you so engaged uh, still with it. Uh, but, you know, even outside of playwriting, there's a, a lot of musicians. I think that music is perhaps the greatest form of storytelling and the, the most accessible and the one that we run to the most. Um, whenever I can't think of an idea, I listen to a song. You know, if I can't think of a line, I listen to a song um, or, or don't know where the story needs to go or what a character needs to say. It's, it's I, I, I can usually find a little little bit of a trail um, 
through a playlist or through something uh, that someone sings or a lyric that someone has written or, you know, even in movies and TV shows. So really, or even just walking down the street with people who don't know that they're playwrights and don't know that they're actors. The most hilarious and sad things that I've heard have just been walking past people in the grocery store or down the street um, and they're sitting outside on their porch and they're talking to someone on the phone and they're saying something. You're like, that's a good line. And they have no idea that they are, you know, a dramatic genius for saying that quote um, in the way that they did in, in the kind of twang that they did. And, and so I, you know, I think that the inspiration comes uh, from every voice that I can find. Motivation, I think, is, is again, talking about those moments of, of people coming and saying that they saw themselves or that they felt seen and heard. You know, I've, I've written plays about a lot of things. And, you know, I remember I wrote a play about, uh, about, a, about a young Black male coming out to his father. And one of the actors who did the show once said, I wish I had this play when my daughter came out to me. I didn't know what to say. I wish I had this play and I would have known what to say um, or shows, you know, dealing with addiction and when someone says, I, I have family that have gone through this. I grew up around this. I have siblings who are still going through this. Um, and I've never sat down in a theater and felt seen. Um, even if it felt like a call out, I've never felt seen. And that, that feels better than any accolade or any round of applause or anything. Um, because I think that what theater does best that, that film and television can't do because you're behind a screen and you know this was shot months, possibly years ago, with theater is life happening in front of you and you have to reckon with that. That so, you know, life is being lived just a few feet away from you. And that life being reflected might be yours and you didn't expect that walking in. Um, so what motivates me is is letting people know that that their stories have a place on stage because what that then does hopefully because let's be honest at the you know at the end of the day we're all going to be dinosaurs one day um and and the work that we do will will be the only thing left behind so you know the greatest motivation and our greatest hope is that the things we do motivate and inspire other people to do the same and say oh okay so my story can be told let me tell it let me tell it through my point of view um, are there any of the musicians that you go to for inspiration you'd want to share with us? Oh, it depends. It depends on the mood. And, you know, it's not even always musicians that I necessarily listen to on a daily. But if, you know, the moment calls for them, you know, I've listened to Eminem and Kanye West just as much as, I, as I've listened to Radiohead and Bob Dylan and the Beatles and Elton John and Elvis and Taylor Swift um, and Beyonce. It's everything. It just really, it's, it runs the gamut. If I'm writing a breakup scene, give me some Taylor Swift that I need to listen oh, to. Yeah. And I will <laughs> listen to Taylor for an entire 24 hour period. And by the end of that 24 hours, I know how to write a breakup scene. Um, like, you know, <laughs> <laughs> if I'm writing a scene about someone who's very angry at their parents and is just raging, I will listen to like a good, um, good mix of early Eminem songs, and I will come out knowing how to scream at a parent um, and, <laughs> and how to be effortlessly and poetically angry. Um, so it just depends on on what the moment calls for and, and and the truth that needs to come out in it. It sounds like really the world around you, this becoming a part 
right? And like fully living your life is what has taught taught you to be a playwright is what I'm gathering from this conversation with you, which is like so overwhelmingly beautiful and simple and but brave because that's what we're all striving to do as artists, no matter the discipline and not everyone can do it or like always has the fortitude. So um, I'm just really touched by everything you've shared and, and also inspired. And like, you know, everyone has their own process, but but hearing yours has been fascinating thus far. Well, and, and side note on that, it, Dana, that reminds me of Debbie Tucker Green. If you've ever read any of her work, um, Chris, I don't know if you've heard of her. Uh, she's a British playwright, but she, um, she was, she just has this unconventional way of, of writing her dialogue and, and inserting overlap. But she, she said sort of that same thing of she gets so inspired listening to everyday speak. Everyday speak has this casual messiness, um, that, you know, super structured pieces just don't have. And anyway, so Dana, you describing that, I was like, man, that's that's exactly, that's exactly right. And that's uh, kind of what she had described. Um, Yeah. So I just wanted to, that was off the record. No, we love hearing about, uh, Chrissy has such a a breadth of knowledge of playwrights and also, you know, all of your, you know, Brene Brown and all, you're always like working on bettering yourself. And so I love when Chrissy has a a reference for us. Oh, God. I know I'm such I a personal that. growth junkie. I really am. <laughs> um, uh, so uh, one other thing that we'd love to to hit on with you, Chris, um, is that this podcast was born out of COVID-19 quarantines. Um, ETC uh, stopped performing in person as almost everyone else did. <laughs> and so this podcast was a way to kind of keep theater alive. Um, and so that was a major event and now we're in our third season. It's been three years, um, which is kind of crazy to think about. Time has very little meaning anymore. Um, and so, uh, because of that, we are focusing on major events as kind of a very broad theme this season. And obviously hands from the fire, the, those 14 pages, 15 pages are a major event in these characters lives who also share that they've had these other major events in their past. Um, You said that this, uh, that you became a playwright because you had the realization, no one was going to tell my stories, but me. Um, Is there any, I mean, that's a major revelation, uh, revelation and event in and of itself, but is there a major life event that you feel comfortable sharing with us that's influenced your work, whether it's a particular play or, I think being able to look back at a lot of a lot of things. Um, I mean, there's a lot of not even necessarily moments, but just whole experiences that you look back on in your life and you say, "Oh, that that has informed me in a way that I didn't think it would when it when it happened." Um, you know, I think that being raised the way I was, I was raised by a single mom in Texas. I think that that was necessary. I wouldn't be writing the plays I did if I hadn't been. I I wouldn't be writing the plays I I do if I didn't go to the high school I went to. You know, if I didn't grow up in Texas Texas at all, you know, I grew up in Houston, which is an extremely diverse place in every kind of community that we lived in. It was mostly immigrants. It was mostly um individuals who had sometimes just arrived to the country that year. 
um, and you have this eclectic mix of of music and foods and voices and languages and and stories that were being thrown at you again unintentionally every single day and going to a high school that was you know not my zoned high school I, I went to school an hour away from where I lived um, I had to wake up at 5 a.m. every day and did not enjoy that but I wouldn't have been the storyteller that I am today if I didn't because I went to a high school that was 99% minority and so again those voices and at school dances there was never one kind of music play there was never one kind of dance being done um and the people I met there and the stories I heard of, of their lives and you know being able to form bonds and friendships that 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 I still have today and um being given the family I was given and and you know I, I have a very, what I would call a dinner table, you know, family um, in which every, you know, you sit down and you ate dinner together and you all talked about your days and, you know, you, you would talk about who you didn't like at school, what teachers didn't like you, who you didn't like at work, you know, the got you know, everyone had their gossip of the day and, you know, big holiday dinners where everyone's talking and all the drama and all the secrets come out um, and, and all the big moments that in the moment you're like, this is just life. You're like, this is just life. But then, you know, you, you sit down when you, get into the arts or get into whatever field you get into and you're like oh that influenced what i'm doing today i'm able to use these voices and, and speak on these experiences in the way that i do because of the things that happened to me and some of those things you know you look back on you know when they're happening you're like why couldn't this happen to anyone but me um but then you realize that it's because you were built to handle it and built to do something with it yeah, thank you are. Oh my God, I'm so touched talking to you. You're so fascinating, you're so vulnerable and open with us. So I will pause and say thank you for that. Um, I know we're going to wrap up soon. Do you have any other questions for Chris Christie? The only thing I really wanted to touch on was talking about the title of this play. Um, it seems like a little metaphorical. Um, sometimes, you know, we have those plays where the title said in the play or whatnot. Um, I, I was just wondering if you talk about uh, inspiration for this title, if you have a process with titles. Some playwrights love titles, some hate them. <laughs> oh, I love titles. I've always loved titles because the title, like even with books, right? It could be a horrible book, but I'm buying the book if it has a really eye-catching title. Um, so I love titles. And usually the title comes first because I think that a lot of the times the title influences what the story is going to be. Um, and sometimes uh, I can't write the show without the title. Sometimes the title is what leads me into it. Um, so in this case, you know, when I, I came up with the title for this play first, um, and I did not know what it meant. I just, I just thought that the these, you know, hands from the fire. I thought that sounds like a cool title. Um, and then wrote the play and didn't really think of what the title connected to with it um, until someone asked me about it, maybe not even a year ago. Um, and I had to come up with an answer on the spot. And when I did, I was like, oh no, that's actually true. Like that's actually, I think, what it is. Um, and and kind of the answer I came up with is that there are times in our lives where we feel like we're just, you know, in the flames. We feel like everything is burning down. Everything is being destroyed and destructed and ruined and turned to ashes around us. We're doing nothing but losing. Um, we're doing nothing but suffering. We're doing nothing but watching everything fall around us while everyone else's house stands tall. 
Um, and sometimes when we're in that, you know, fire, when we're in, we're in that uh, state of, of loss and burning, sometimes all we need is one hand to reach out to us and, and pull us out of the fire. It's fascinating that you start from a title because um, Barbara, our playwright from the very first episode of this season, season three, um, she told us that her process is she waits till the end, like her characters speak first. She doesn't even always know a plot. Um, but she does a title at the end and sh she will like sometimes workshop titles and they have to be kind of musical and blah, blah, blah. And so like a title is like the cherry on top for her. And I love that yours is oftentimes like more the, the seed and the Genesis. So that's what we're, we're nerds about hearing process <laughs> over here. <laughs> yeah. It is so cool to compare that because it's like going back to your architecture comparison where it's almost foundational of, okay, from here mm -hmm. we build, yeah. we build the rest. So cool. So my, my last question for you, Chris, was how many pieces have you written and do you have one that you are particularly proud of? Yeah, so um, I've I've written close to 15 to 20 full lengths and uh, probably probably a, a, a yeah. lot of other short ones. Um, someone asked me this and we did a, a count of the files on my computer and it came out in total with full length and short ones combined to, to 70 something. Um, but if there's, if there's one that I'm, I'm proud, I don't know if there's one, it's like asking me to choose my kids y'all. Um, I can't do that out loud. Um, I can't say which one is my favorite and the rest are going to get jealous um, and not talk to me for a while. Um, but I, I, I don't know. I don't, I don't know. No pressure if you don't have one, or maybe one you just feel connected to, where you're like, "Man, I'm really invested in this one." In particular. <laughs> that's, that's even that's even tougher because <laughs> I have to be invested in all of them to finish them. Um, I, I ah man, I will say, <laughs> I I will say that one of them that I that I uh, that I that I didn't expect to feel as much as I did was a play. Actually, no, I'm going to answer it this way, because I never think that I'm as close to it as I actually am. I always think I'm writing characters. I never see that I'm writing myself until it's done and up somewhere. Um, and even then I'm in denial, but usually, not usually, always, it's, it's my mother who is uh, a, a incredibly honest person um, and who will, you know, kind of turn to me in the audience and be like, oh, that's you, isn't it? And I'll be like, no, that's not me. That's, that's you know, it's a character I wrote. She's like, no, because remember when you were 12 and you did that thing and you said that thing, then when you were 16, you did that and you got in trouble for that and you were going through that. So so I think that th they're all plays to me until, you know, until I hear them or see them um, with other people. And I realize that they're all just extensions and tethers of my life. Um, so they're all they all mean the most to me because they're all me. Purely out of curiosity, and this can be an off the record, where um, you grew up in Houston, which one of my best friends from college is from Houston, so I'm familiar from hearing her experience with that. Um, I went to school in the South. Where are you living now? Yeah, right now, currently, I'm in my birth home where I was born in Louisville, Kentucky. It's where I've been doing my COVID hideout. Um, but but next year, it's it's to New York City, so... So we're, we, we ask our playwrights um, the same three questions at the end, just a little kind of 
continuity thing for the audience. Um, but before we do that, we always love to give our playwrights a chance to share um, any of their information for our listeners. Like if, if whatever you feel comfortable sharing, if you want social media, if you have a website, if you have any productions um, going on, you like to advertise new play exchange account, any of that, um, we'll put it in the liner notes and you can spell out any websites and things like that. I would not give my website because my website is in dire need of reconstruction. Um, but I will give my social media. I am on Instagram way too much. Um, at Chrissy Lie Black, Chris without the H, Black without the C. Um, I am easy to find and too active. Um, upcoming things uh, on starting September 30th through October 23rd, 2022, um, my play Mass Graves opens in Los Angeles um, with the Loft Ensemble at Sawyer's Playhouse. Um, and then on October 7th and October 8th, I have my show Clipper Cut Nation um, is at the Harold Prince Theater in Pennsylvania. And then it transfers off-Broadway to Cherry Lane Theater from October 19th to November 7th. Um, and then my play It Happened to Jefferson Square is at the Ensemble Theater in Houston, Texas, October 28th through the 30th, I want to say, 2022. I mean, well, I'll definitely be at the Cherry Lane. Um, that's actually really close to my office building um, where I work during the day. So I will definitely come see the show. Um, that, awesome. That's so exciting. All right, here we go. So first question. Do you have a word that maybe is a favorite word or a word that you are drawn to right now? This is like the, the inside the actor studio questionnaire at the end. I've always wanted yeah. to do that. This is awesome. Um, <laughs> oh, man. That's, this is such an evil question to ask someone who does nothing but deal with words. We know. What? <laughs> huh. I would say... Dana, you were just missing the evil laugh on that. I know. <laughs> there we go. I would say a word that right now... Oh, man, that's tough. Would be... I saw something from a poet, Lemon Anderson. He was talking about the word impossible. And he said, when I was growing up, I thought that impossible was... Um, meant I'm possible. So anytime someone would say that's impossible, I took it as a challenge. So I, I really like the word impossible right now because I'm mm -hmm. starting to take it as a challenge. Um, yes, following our Inside the Actor Studio line of questioning, uh, is there a place, location, or setting um, that is really dear to you, nostalgic, perhaps a favorite? I would say anytime I'm 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 in my grandparents' house, um, that's that's a feeling like no other. Mostly because they don't throw anything away, so any memory you may have in that house is literally still in that house. That's awesome. I love that. So maybe pivoting off of that answer, is there an item in your life, maybe a keepsake or a totem of sorts, that is something that's precious to you that you would consider? A favorite item? I would have to say either, this is going to sound really Gen Z, 
but either my phone or my laptop because that's where really all the good stuff is. Mostly my laptop. I, I, I shouldn't need my phone. So if I had to save one thing from a fire, it would probably be my laptop. Um, This has been such a joy. Thank you so much. I'm so glad we got to know you. And seriously, when you're up in the city, like I'll find you on Instagram. I'm on it too much too. Um, But yeah, please let's hang out. I definitely want to come see your plays. This We're in gratitude. So thank you so much. Yeah. The Ensemble Theater Chattanooga and the Lights Up podcast were one of 11 organizations across the Chattanooga Valley to receive grant funding through the Sustaining the Humanities through the American Rescue Plan. As part of this podcast, for each episode, we would like to highlight one of the other organizations receiving a SHARP grant. The Charles H. Coolidge National Medal of Honor Heritage Center memorializes the history of our nation's highest military award for valor from the first medals in 1863 to the present and educates the next generation of Americans about the six character traits associated with the gallantry of medal recipients. Patriotism, citizenship, courage, integrity, sacrifice, and commitment. In 1986, John H. Hill, President and CEO of Colonial Freight Systems in Knoxville, Tennessee, presented the idea of establishing a museum to honor Medal of Honor recipient Alvin C. York to the Sergeant Alvin C. York chapter of the 82nd Airborne Division Association. The chapter recommended the creation of a Museum of Military History featuring a Hall of Valor to honor the Medal of Honor and its recipients. Chattanooga was named as the preferred location. The Medal of Honor Hall of Valor Museum of Military History Foundation leased office and exhibit space in Chattanooga Soldiers and Sailors Memorial Auditorium, then relocated to space rented from the city of Chattanooga, where it remained for approximately 12 years. In 2003, the museum opened an exhibit gallery in Northgate Mall, where it was for 16 years operated primarily by a dedicated group of volunteers and gained increased visibility with an annual attendance around 6,000 visitors. During this period, the museum adopted the Medal of Honor Character Development Program, developed by the Congressional Medal of Honor Foundation, and implemented it within the Hamilton County School System. The curriculum proved to be popular, and in 2016, the Tennessee State Education Commission approved the Congressional Medal of Honor Character Development Program as a statewide initiative. The museum continued to search for a larger and centrally located permanent home. After considering several possible locations, the committee unanimously agreed that a 19,000 square foot property in downtown Chattanooga was the ideal location. In August 2017, the museum's board of trustees executed a letter of intent to lease the facility so that the new National Medal of Honor Heritage Center could be located in the heart of where its heritage started back in 1863. In 2019, the committee surpassed its six and a quarter million dollar fundraising goal and officially changed its name to the Charles H. Coolidge National Medal of Honor Heritage Center. Officially opening on February 22, 2020, the Charles H. Coolidge National Medal of Honor Heritage Center is operated by an experienced professional staff with the aid of a large group of volunteers, and it offers a range of exhibits, unique programming, and special events 
along with character education courses and activities for visitors of all ages. For more information, you can visit the Medal of Honor Heritage Center on the web at www.mohhc.org. Lights Up is a podcast produced by the Ensemble Theater of Chattanooga, a 501c3 nonprofit independent theater company located in southeast Tennessee. Lights Up is hosted by Christy Gallo and Dana Colagiovanni. Sound by Eric Red Wyatt. Graphics by Jamie Goodnight. No part of this podcast may be reproduced, copied, or presented without the expressed written consent of the Ensemble Theater of Chattanooga. The plays presented on this podcast are protected by all national and international copyright laws. If you are interested in producing any of the plays featured on Lights Up, contact us and we will get you in touch with the playwright. If you would like your play considered for a future episode or would like to be an actor or a reader, please shoot us a message at lightsup at ensembletheaterofchattanooga.com. As a nonprofit, ATC relies on donations and the goodwill of patrons and supporters like you. If you would like to make a one-time donation to ETC, please visit our website for details. You can also support us by giving us a like and rating this podcast. 